At this time, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible, God's Word to the book of Romans, chapter 15. Uh, David Brainerd, does the name ring a bell to anyone? He lived a long time ago, centuries. He was for a short period of time a missionary among Native Americans in uh, New Jersey, of all places, and uh, died young of tuberculosis, age 29. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, equated with the Great Awakening, uh, wrote a biographical sketch of David Brainerd and uh, uses parts of Brainerd's journals in that uh, biography. And in one part of Brainerd's uh, journals, he states, he articulates his life's ambition. He was probably 26, 27 at the time when he wrote it. And here it is, that God might be known to be God in the whole earth. That was his life's ambition, that God might be known to be God in the whole earth. With that holy ambition before us, please follow along as I read for us, again in Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Again, let me remind you of David Brainerd's life ambition that God might be known to be God in the whole earth. He might very well have had this text in mind when he penned those words. We begin in the 14th verse. This is review. We were here two Sundays ago, those of you who were present, and we noted at that time that in the 14th verse, there is a definite shift. Paul embarks on the conclusion of this epistle, and it is a conclusion that begins in verse 14 
and we'll carry on right through to the end of chapter 16, a rather lengthy conclusion. And of all things, of all the ways in which he could ease into his concluding thoughts, he does so by offering a word of clarification. He notes in verse 15, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. On some points, regarding some things, I have written very boldly. I don't think I'm reading too much in this. To use the vernacular, I think Paul is saying the following. I know I have gotten right up into your face. I think that's what he's saying. I know at various points in this epistle, as I've penned it, as I've written it to you, I've come nose to nose and gotten right up into your face. And the potential exists for some misunderstanding because I know what you're thinking. You might be thinking to yourself, who is Paul? He did not found this church at Rome. He's never been to Rome. He holds no position in this church. He's never even visited this church. How dare he write us an epistle like this? And so I realize, I realize I have written to you very boldly on some points. Let me erase any confusion, any hard feelings that might arise. And let me do so firstly by acknowledging your maturity. 14th verse, I myself am satisfied, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced about you, my brothers, three things, you yourselves, number one, you're full of knowledge, I know it. Number two, you're filled, you're full of goodness, number one. Number two, filled with all knowledge. And number three, able to instruct one another. So again, to do away with any potential hard feelings regarding the fact that he has written boldly as he has explained the gospel, and even more so as he has applied the gospel. He acknowledges their spiritual maturity. Secondly, what does he do? He reminds them of his ministry. Verse 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because, I don't want you to forget this, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. In other words, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. I minister accordingly. I write accordingly so that the offering of the Gentiles, continuing on in verse 16, may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Do you have it then? He points firstly to their maturity, he points secondly to his own ministry, and he does so again just to ease over any hard feelings that might be surfacing among those who are members of the church at Rome. Having introduced the subject of his ministry, he sticks with it in verse 17. All the way as far as we read verse 21. And note the following. He mentions two things concerning his ministry. This is fascinating. First of all, he talks about his success. As a matter of fact, did you catch it? He boasts. He brags on his ministry. 17th verse. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Note it, 
how he describes his work for God. It is in Christ Jesus. There's the cause of his boasting. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Oh, the success of his ministry owing to Christ. One reason, one reason alone. Christ working through him. How? Three ways. Firstly, you see it there in the, 16, in the 17th verse. Reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture, 18th verse, to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Now note that word by three times. And here we have a threefold description of how Christ works through Paul. Firstly, right at the end of verse 18, by word and deed. In other words, I preach. I recognize that the scriptures are not human speculation. They constitute divine revelation. And they form the heart of my ministry, the verbal proclamation, preaching of the word of God, and my deeds, my life, support my ministry. That not only do I preach the gospel, preach the word, but I live the gospel, live the word, and Christ has used that in others. He adds, secondly, verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders elsewhere. He writes to the Corinthians, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. You go back, for example, and you read beginning in Acts 13 through more or less Acts, Acts 19. And we discover that on one occasion, the apostle Paul blinded a magician. Do you remember that? What was his name? Elimus? Something like that? Someone who was inhibiting the progress of the gospel. And uh, Paul, with one word, blinded that sorcerer. On another occasion, he healed a cripple. On another occasion, he cast out the demon who was plaguing a young girl. He performed signs and wonders to such a degree that Luke records in Acts 19 the following. God performed extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. These signs and wonders, a powerful confirmation of what? Paul's apostolic ministry. That he, as one of the apostles, constituted the foundation of the church and this key period of time in terms of God giving over to us his revelation. And this ministry confirmed through these miraculous signs and wonders. But he adds thirdly in verse 19, the third instance of that word, by, by the power of the Spirit of God. And you see, so you see it was Christ. It is Christ reigning and ruling. 
And it is Christ working through me. Yes, my words and deeds. Yes, these tremendous signs and wonders. And doing so through the instrumentality of the Word of God. By the Spirit of God. To such a degree, to such an extent, that when Paul writes the Thessalonians, he can say to them as he thanks God for them, that they received his preaching not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. The word of God being made alive by the spirit of God in the minds and hearts of men advancing the kingdom of Christ. And so Paul makes this, gives this description of his ministry, speaks of its success, attributes the success of his ministry to Christ, working in him by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the spirit of God, so that what has happened, what has been the fruit from Jerusalem, Picture it on the map. There you have it, the east of the Mediterranean, the nation of Israel, Jerusalem sitting there, all the way around to Illyricum. And so you move north from Jerusalem, and you enter Syria. You move northwest, and you come to modern-day Turkey. You cross over the Aegean Sea, and you come to Greece. You head north, you come to Macedonia. A little northwest, you arrive at Illyricum, what had been a Roman province, the modern-day Balkans. And Paul's point is this, that his ministry has been successful to such an extent that he has proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Is he saying he has preached the gospel to every individual who lives in that geographical region? No. Is he suggesting that he has established a local church in every city, town, and hamlet that exists in that huge geographical region? No. His point is simply this. From Jerusalem to Illyricum and at many points in between in key strategic locations during his three missionary journeys... He has gone forth with his companions, his colleagues. He has preached. He has baptized. He has established local churches. He has appointed elders to such an extent that over the eastern part of the Roman Empire, there now exists, founded, an evangelical gospel witness to such a degree that he can say, I have fulfilled my ministry. It brings us to the second thing he says about his ministry concerning its strategy. And he goes on, therefore, in verse 20, given the success of my ministry, uh, let me describe for you my strategy. And thus I make it my ambition, my goal. Here is what drives me to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, Lest I build on someone else's foundation. I wasn't called, he is saying, I wasn't called to build on someone else's foundation. I was called to lay the foundation. I was called to go where Christ has not yet been proclaimed. 
I was called to go where no one has yet named the name of Christ. And he sees his ministry as a fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy, verse 21, as it is written, those who have never been told of him, of Christ, will see. And those who have never heard will understand. That's my strategy. I want to head to those who have never seen. I want to get to those who have never heard. I want to minister among those who do not yet understand. My ministry here in the East, successful. Oh, the success of his ministry. The Eastern Roman Empire, from Jerusalem all the way through to Illyricum. Three missionary journeys, I'm done. My goal, he will go on to say in this epistle, is what? It's now to come to you at Rome. And my plan is simply this. Just as I have used the city of Antioch in the east as the base of my operation to launch those missionary journeys, I am coming to you now so that I might use Rome. I might use Rome, the city of Rome, and you in particular, that church, as the base of my operations as I have my vision, my eyes fixed on Spain, the western part of the empire, his strategy to proclaim Christ where Christ had not yet been proclaimed. Did you get them? The two marks, features, characteristics that Paul gives us of his own ministry, its success, its strategy, culminating in that statement in verse 20, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. That is where I want us to camp out this day. I want us to keep in mind Brainerd's life's ambition that God might be known to be God in the whole earth. And I want us to keep in the forefront of our minds now this tremendous declaration on the part of the Apostle Paul, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. And I want us to take the Apostle Paul as our example. We have great biblical warrant for doing so. Because on more than one occasion, the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians, he writes to the Corinthians, and he says to them, be imitators of me. Do as I do. Act as I act. So we have good biblical warrant for looking at the example of the Apostle Paul and gleaning from apostolic example lessons and truths for us. But we need to be careful, don't we? We need to be a little guarded. We need to remember a few things. The first thing we need to remember is this. Paul was an apostle. We are not. We are not apostles. There aren't apostles today. There have never been apostles since the time of the first century. Christ's own appointed apostles. And I say to you, if you come across someone today claiming to be apostle, run. If you can't run, shuffle as quick as you can, but get away. I guarantee it, one of two extremes, either it is a severely misguided individual or it is a severely sinister individual, one or the other, it doesn't matter, run. There are no apostles today. There have not been any apostles since the time of the apostles. They were Christ's commissioned representatives. 
eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Paul, he was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Yes, on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Christ appeared to him. And their ministry was confirmed by signs and wonders. They performed the same miracles that Christ himself had performed to attest to the fact that he had sent them out, imparting to them, giving to them the same authority by which his father had sent him into the world. And so we need to be careful of this, aware of the fact, well, we're not apostles. Paul was an apostle. We also need to be aware of the fact that we're not gifted like Paul. I mean, we're talking about an exceptional man. Even from a human vantage point, Paul must have been a brainiac. I mean, he must have been men among men. In terms of his intellectual understanding and the breadth and depth of his learning, just in terms of human understanding, you couple that natural giftedness, common grace, with the Spirit of God. And the revelation that was imparted to him and the gifts that God gave to him to fulfill his calling among the Gentiles, well, that's not you and that's not me. And thirdly, we don't have the same calling. He was called for a very specific duty. He was appointed to a very specific task as a trailblazer, as the one among the apostles who would go in particular to the Gentiles who would proclaim the gospel, who would suffer in an unparalleled fashion for the cause of Christ, ultimately laying down his life as a martyr, 65 AD in the city of Rome. We are not Paul. We need to remind ourselves of that. And so when we look to him as an example, and when we hear him say to us on occasion, become imitators of me, let's remain within the realm of realism. All right? And understand who he was and who we are. And being very realistic, however, when we come to this text, I want to affirm four ways in which we should imitate the Apostle Paul. Four ways in which we, as we seek to please God in this life, should learn from his apostolic example a hero of the faith who has gone before us, exactly how we are to live for Christ. Here's number one. Like Paul, we should make it our ambition to boast in Christ. I think we can glean that from the text, and I believe it's confirmed elsewhere in Scripture. Like Paul, as Christians, we should make it our ambition to boast in Christ. Back to verse 17, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Outside of Christ Jesus, I have no reason to be proud of anything. And so what a tremendous example for us that we should make it our ambition to boast in Christ. This speaks to each and every one of us as Christians. It speaks to us as believers when it comes to what we're trying to accomplish in the home, especially moms and dads. And it speaks to us as Christians when it comes to what we are trying to accomplish as a local church. In the Sunday school hour, as you teach and instruct those young hearts, as an elder, as a deacon, serving in a myriad of ways here at Grace Community Church, 
that our ambition, the ambition that is always before us, is that we might boast in the Lord. Meaning what? That we might understand, we might fully comprehend that if we see any fruit in our labors, there is only one possible explanation under heaven, and his name is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul on another occasion wrote to the Corinthians, I worked harder than any of them, his fellow apostles. Take it at face value. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. There's a great story there in John 21, and it's there for a number of reasons. This probably isn't the principal reason, but it's one of them. And so it's a post-resurrection event. The Lord Jesus has risen from the dead. He encounters his disciples on the shore. Uh, prior to encountering them, uh, they seem to be a little misguided as to what they should do next. It's, you know, between the resurrection and the ascension. And uh, Simon Peter says to the others, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Whenever I hear that phrase, I'm reminded of a young man, a student I taught years ago. It was his favorite phrase from the Bible. I'm going fishing. How are you doing today? What are you doing later? What's your plan for your life? I'm going fishing. He's probably still saying it to this day. I mean, he said it with that little half grin on his face and would always say, see, I have biblical warrant for this. I'm going fishing. Just like the disciples went fishing. Well, there's Peter. I'm going fishing. And the rest of them go with him. And off they go and they spend all night toiling with their nets there in the sea and they catch absolutely nothing. As the day breaks, the Lord Jesus says to them, look, boys, out you go again. Try again. Cast your nets on the other side this time. And what happens? They haul in an innumerable number of fish. Please note, please note, please note. Same disciples. Same boat. Same nets. Same lake. What's the difference? His name is Jesus Christ. That is the only difference in ministry, my friend. I mean, you think back, we made reference to David Brainerd. He lived in a, at a, a fascinating time of history, and one of his contemporaries, Jonathan Edwards. And as Edwards reflected on the revivals, just wildfire up the eastern, the colonies there, the original 13. And uh, as he reflected on it all, and people asked him, well, how, 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 how did this happen? And how can we make it happen here? And how can we cause it to happen again? Edwards really had no answer for that. His explanation was simply this. He said, look... As I reflect on the Great Awakening and everything that transpired, I'm struck by the fact that we were preaching the same sermons before the Awakening that we were preaching during the Awakening. And we were preaching the same sermons after the Awakening that we were preaching during the Awakening. We didn't do anything different. It's just that the Spirit decided to do something different. The Spirit decided to baptize that preaching with extra extraordinary unction to such a degree that it produced one of the momentous events, really, in the history of the church, the Great Awakening. I'm off on a tangent, but I'll tell you, the election this November isn't going to save us. The only thing that's going to save us is another Great Awakening, folks. That is the only thing that will turn around the course of this country, nation, and society. It will be an unbelievable outpouring of the Spirit of God through the people of God. 
that will awaken a society to their deadness before Almighty God and bring about an unbelievable transformation. That is our hope. It must be our hope. And as Edwards reflected on his own lifetime experience, that's how he accounted for his sovereign work of the Spirit. And how important that is for us in ministry. We make it our ambition to boast in Christ. Yes, we work hard. We're not lazy. We're called to diligent service. We're called to get involved. We're called to expend ourselves. Oh, but never lose sight of this Pauline example that even the apostle himself, as he reflected on his ministry from Jerusalem to Illyricum, could say simply this, I am so proud of what I have done in Christ. Meaning Christ has done it all through me. Here's the second lesson we can take. We should make it our ambition to bring people to obedience. It comes out of the 18th verse. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. We should, therefore, I am submitting to you, make it our ambition to bring people to obedience. I'll pause for a moment. For effect, I don't know. I'll pause. Bring people to obedience. Ooh. Sounds rather legalistic. I thought we were justified by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. Absolutely true. So that we could obey him. There's the rest of it. Yes, he is our savior. And he's our Lord. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. You even think of the Great Commission. You go to Matthew 28 and you study it carefully. There in the Great Commission, the Lord Jesus sends out his disciples and he tells them to go forth, yes, and make disciples of all nations. And he tells them to go forth and to baptize people. And he tells them to go forth to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. I'm looking for obedient people. I'm looking for subjects. I'm looking for those who will acknowledge me as Lord, who will acknowledge me as King. Yes, we know when it comes to the gospel, we're not preaching salvation by works. We know. I trust we know. I mean, there's absolutely nothing our works can accomplish when it comes to our salvation and being in the right with God. Uh, I, I think back on this years ago, powerfully reminded of this. I was speaking, uh, taking a funeral. And I know this is a little, this is a little morbid, but it does, it does serve a purpose. Taking a funeral and uh, sitting in the front row, waiting for the, to start, to be given the okay, people were in. And as I was sitting there preparing, the casket was at the front, and the elderly sister who had passed on, the casket was open. It's fine. And people were filtering them, and uh, a couple of women made their way to the front. They wanted to give their respects. And one of them, as she came to the front, said, oh, she looks great. She looks great. And yeah, I suppose she did look great. That's, that's fine. She wasn't great. It was cosmetics. Someone had spent an awful lot of time applying the cosmetics and the clothing and everything in such a way that a lifelong friend could gaze upon her, a corpse, and say she looks great. 
Do you see where I'm going with this? That's us. Cosmetics, it's a billion dollar a year industry here in the States. And cosmetics for this, cover up this, cover up that. It's exactly the same thing when it comes to the soul. How many people go through life applying cosmetics upon cosmetics upon cosmetics upon cosmetics? You look great. You're a walking corpse. You aren't great in the sight of God. It is applied cosmetics. There is none righteous, no, not one. In the assessment of God, we are a disobedient people. Oh, but Christ loved us. And he gave himself up for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That is a gift we receive. We receive from beginning to end. It is why we are justified by faith. But having been justified by faith and having been brought now into union with the Lord Jesus Christ and having been made one with him by the Holy Spirit out of thanksgiving and love for him, what is our heart's desire? Show me your will. Reveal your will in your word. And no, we're not perfect. And yes, we stumble. And yes, we mess it up. Lots. But there is at least deep down this desire now and this propensity and this inclination to obey him who is not only our Savior, but our Lord. That is the great commission. Teach them everything I have commanded you. Why? That it might lead them to obey me. Oh, may that be our ambition. We should make it our ambition to bring people to obedience. Here's the third lesson we can derive from Paul's example. We should make it our ambition to serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. What does Paul say there? By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Oh, friend, Christian, make it your ambition to serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me say something that I hope doesn't confuse you. I hope it brings clarity to what is at times awfully muddied waters and a confusing subject. I affirmed earlier that, uh, well, I didn't use the word, I'll use it now. I'm a cessationist when it comes to signs and wonders. I believe they applied to a very specific time period in the history of the church, that if you take a survey of the history of redemption, you will see in the time of Moses, right, the plagues, Elijah, Elisha, Christ, and the apostles, there were specific defined seasons where there was a special outpouring of the Spirit of God and signs and wonders given to confirm the revelation that was being imparted to man. I think it's gone. It's done. All right? But I believe in miracles. Oh, do I ever. I believe in miracles. If I didn't believe in miracles, can't help but grin, I wouldn't be a pastor. If I didn't believe in miracles, I wouldn't be preaching right now. Oh, I pray we all believe in miracles. And I pray we are all expecting miracles. And I pray we're able to see miracles when they happen. When 11-year-old Johnny bows the knee beside his bed in front of mommy and daddy, and a little wide-eyed, stammering tongue 
but acknowledges his sin toward them and toward his sisters and toward his friends on the playground and acknowledges all is not right between him and God and receives the Lord Jesus as Savior. What have you just witnessed? That's a miracle. A divine outpouring of the power of the Spirit of God. Oh, think it through, my friends. Breaks my heart. The, the ones we've seen wander from here. Young people. I'm praying for a miracle. What else is going to do it? For them to come to their senses, what else is going to do it but a miracle? Oh, you think of the broken relationships and the friction between spouses and, and other relationships, and you think of how far back it goes, and oh, just the mess and the problems and the water under the bridge, and he said, she said, he did, she did, and on and on and on and on it goes. How will you ever put this house back together? How are you ever going to bring about reconciliation? It's going to take a miracle. Oh, you think of that hard-headed nephew of yours. The know-it-all, you know the one. Absolutely obstinate, thinks he knows everything under the sun. You can't tell him anything. Making an outright mess of his life, but I know it all. What's it going to take? Are we praying for miracles? Are we expecting miracles? Our only hope is a miracle. That God would see fit in accordance with his sovereign grace to pour out the spirit of power and to work in wonderful ways. What is happening? What is happening? I've had, it's been delightful of late. I've had a few of you come to me and say, you know, look, the penny dropped. I think I get it. I think I get now what I didn't get before. Do I walk away and pat myself on the back? No, I silently say what? Praise God for a miracle. They finally get it. The light has finally gone on. Some illumination has finally been imparted. Oh, it is miracle after miracle after miracle. Do we notice them as such when they occur? And do we live in earnest expectation of miracles? Oh, I don't think I have to hedge this. Do I have to hedge this? I mean, this isn't what's his name, Benny Hinn, right? We're clear on that? Do I even have to go there? It's not what I'm saying. I mean, that absolute monstrosity that is out there, I mean, that is not where I'm going with this. I'm speaking simply of the divine operation, the power of the Spirit working through the Word of God. It is our only hope. Oh, make it our ambition, please, to serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is to see miracles. Here's a fourth and final lesson we ought to derive from the Apostle Paul. We should make it our ambition to preach Christ to those who have never heard. It's right there in verse 20, isn't it? Brings, brings us back to Brainerd, doesn't it? That God might be known to be God in the whole earth. Paul says, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. We're not all called to do that. We're not all the Apostle Paul. You're called to be a husband, called to be a wife. Uh, perhaps you're called to be a parent. I don't know, maybe not. 
uh, called to some sort of ministry here in the church, doing this, doing that, doing the next thing. Uh, we need to be very clear on this, not beat ourselves up. Well, I'm not going out like Paul went out. We're not all supposed to go out like Paul went out. We're supposed to do what God has given us to do and be faithful with the things he has laid at our feet. But I will add this. We cannot claim to be a loving people if we are not involved in some way in taking the gospel to those who have never heard. Did you catch that? We cannot claim to be a loving people if we are not involved in some way in taking the gospel to those who have never heard. 1.5 billion people on the face of the earth right now without any clear gospel witness. Does that concern us? Equally true. 86% of Americans think they're going to heaven. What false gospel have they imbibed? Does that break our hearts? Does it create a sense of urgency? Okay, I'm not called to go, but out of love, I am compelled in some way to be involved. I remember a, a hymn uh, we used to sing long, long ago growing up. And it was something to the effect, I had to Google it because I've forgotten many of the words, but, but listen to this. Maybe it'll ring a bell for some of you. Years, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. Ring a bell for anyone? Some of the older ones. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. That was me. Oh, but looking at the cross, mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. How dare I look down my nose at the lost? How dare I judge the lost? How dare I dismiss the lost? How dare I browbeat the lost? I was lost. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. And the only thing that has made a difference now is the sovereign grace of God. And having tasted of that sovereign grace, I am compelled. I catch something of the heat of Paul's ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. I mean, I suppose that looks like praying for our missionaries. There's a simple place to start, right? You get the monthly insert that Rick puts in there dutifully. Giving is another way to be involved. We had our care group missions night just two or three weeks ago, wasn't it? And I know a lot of you put together packages and you're writing letters to our missionaries. What a, what a wonderful way to be involved. And how wonderful it would be if some of us actually went. Dare I say something? Okay, I dare say something. How wonderful it would be if some of these kids in this room right now, 10, 12, 15 years from now, were actually writing, sending email to us from far off places we can't even find on a map. Now, I know what some of you moms and dads are thinking. Stephen, stop talking like that. <laughs> to which my reply to you moms and dads is this. You stop thinking like that. 
Get your head in the game. What are we about here? What is our calling? This great ambition that gripped the Apostle Paul. Oh, it is so that I might preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. That's what I glean from this text. I pray the Spirit of God impresses it upon us. When I think of just one great summary statement as we bring it to a close, bring it to a head. The one great summary statement is taken from a little plaque that often adorned many of the houses that I would frequent growing up. Many of the people in church, many of the people I knew, you'd go over there for Sunday afternoon meal or visit with them, and there always was this little plaque, maybe on the fridge, maybe over the living room, the, the dining room table, or there on the entranceway when you first walked in. And it stated this very simply, and I think this is a great conclusion to this sermon. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Our Father, we pray that we might take this wee poem to heart, that we might truly comprehend its significance and the eternal verities declared therein, and that we might live accordingly. We pray it might be true in terms of whatever you have called us to. In the home, as we labor for your glory, in our places of work, as we seek to honor you in our daily tasks, here at Grace Community Church, as we seek to minister in various ways, in all things, may this be true, may we do all things for Christ, for his glory, for his honor, we pray. Amen.